Welcome to the Civil Service World podcast. I'm Jess. And I'm Susanna. And each week we'll be exploring an issue that matters to civil servants in their professional lives. In this week's episode, we're asking whether there's a place for emotion in public policy. In our episode on social work reform, we discussed new public management, an approach to running public services that became popular in the 80s but is still pretty dominant today. That approach emphasises business techniques to manage services and leads to targets and things like performance monitoring. If you're interested in how that approach is being challenged in different sectors, do listen to the episode on social work. But new public management is also being challenged in a less obvious way. Its legacy is a focus on outcomes, on data and what you can measure. But in recent years, we've seen a rise of people exploring a more emotional and, well, human way to design services. We have a UK wellbeing framework and a Minister for Loneliness, for example. In Scotland, the government's performance framework states as a key value that the government will treat people with kindness, dignity and compassion. And one of the outcomes is that Scottish children will grow up loved. Earlier this year, Civil Service World magazine spoke to three Scottish officials about the framework and one of them, Leslie Fraser, the Director for Housing and Social Justice, told us that this outcome for children to grow up loved had been developed with children and it therefore reflects what children see as important. She said, loved is not a word that was frequently used in the first part of my career as a civil servant and it takes us into new and different territory. So here with us to discuss the kind of territory that we might be moving into is Kit Collingwood. She's formerly a senior civil servant and founder of the One Team Gov movement, which aims to reform public services from the ground up by creating networks of change rather than imposing top-down reforms. Now, One Team Gov has seven guiding principles, and among them is to care deeply about citizens, which is explained with the phrase, we will be distinguished by our empathy for users and for each other. Kit, can you tell us why you think empathy is a key skill for civil servants? My interest in empathy came about when I made the switch from policymaking in government and some parliamentary work into the world of digital transformation. And I reflected back on my time in policymaking and observed that the huge drive, as you say, towards being analytically driven in decision making was actually ignoring a huge amount of context about the way the decisions are made including incredibly high-profile and important areas. So I would frequently see policy being made and I would frequently make policy myself that didn't touch end-users of services at all, even when those services were high-risk and involved a huge amount of vulnerability on the part of the people on the receiving end. That was completely legitimate at the time and I think is fairly legitimised as a practice now. But what I overwhelmingly felt at the end of my time in policymaking was that we'd left a huge gap where observing real people's feelings at the point services were made would leave a massive gap in how we deliver policy. And that to me felt like a huge financial and delivery risk because what we were doing was making policy that was not particularly realistic in how it was implemented. And that's enhanced by structural factors and skills and leadership and a load of other stuff. But I really felt that at the heart of it, a lack of empathy for the people on the receiving end of policy, which would become operational policy, which would become operational delivery, was massively more important than had ever been thought about before. And so obviously in one team gov, you would speak about empathy for users, empathy for each other's. But what kind of reaction did you get when you spoke to other civil servants about empathy? Were officials in in your wider network open to that kind of argument, that kind of thinking? 
Some of them were, but there was a huge amount of cynicism, as you might imagine. There is, so prevailing thought is very strong, particularly in a large bureaucracy like the civil service. And the prevailing thought and attitude was that, I think partially that we couldn't afford a motion, partially that we weren't quote-unquote trained for it, and partially that it was an empty, unmeasurable way of doing business. Um, and I disagreed strongly with all of those premises, and I still do. To say that... There's no place for emotion in policymaking. It ignores the reality of how humans work, which is that we're all intrinsically emotional. So it's not whether there's emotion in policymaking or not, it's whether you recognise that there's emotion in policymaking. That was something I felt quite strongly. And we've received a huge amount of cynicism, cynicism for talking about empathy as something that should be a core skill of policymakers, which is something I've argued for years now. And I think if I had to guess, I would say that some of that is fear-driven, And some of it is simply because it hasn't been a legitimized and described skill. And therefore, people simply don't think that it's necessary. You know, the the civil service is governed by a competency framework. And until recently, that made no mention of anything to do with compassion, empathy or kindness. So why should people care was my feeling. So there's lots there that we can dig into. Before we do, I wanted to play you a conversation that I had earlier in the year with some officials in Scotland. As we said before, in Scotland they have kindness at the heart of their national performance framework and there's also a a kindness innovation network which is a a group of public, third, private sector professionals who are trying to explore how to encourage kindness in their organisations and their communities. Now that's being led by the Carnegie Trust who have also written several reports about kindness in the public service. So to find out more, I spoke to Sarah Davidson, who's CEO of the Carnegie Trust, and Elizabeth Kelly, a GP who's an associate at Carnegie and is also part of the Kindness Innovation Network. I began by asking Elizabeth what kindness looks like in her work as a GP. I think there's two things. I was thinking about this today. As the lead GP, and I've been the senior partner in, in many practices, particularly in a rural community, where the impact of illness and suffering within that community really affects those people that you work with, whether they're colleagues in in medicine or nursing or the the reception staff. So seeing people in the context of who they are as people and not just in their professional roles enables you to have conversations that are about kindness and difficulty, about spontaneous acts of kindness. It's about, and then what you see is you see the team really pulling together, not just to see you as the doctor or the nurse or the receptionist, but as people within the context of the difficult environment in that you work with. And that becomes really evident when somebody dies, when you see somebody who is maintaining trust and confidentiality because they have to, because they are in that professional field, but also that actually their family involved in delivering soup to somebody who can't manage to cook for themselves. And that's where you see the impact of kindness, because actually that human relationship, that human relations is actually what enables well-being. And I think the last thing I'd like to say on that point, tying back into evidence, that we know that people's experience of public policies or public services are much greater and improve outcomes if the staff delivering them are well and act with kindness. So just to think what it looks like in practice, you're talking about treating people as people, not as just professionals or patients, but what does that mean day to day? Does that mean making space for more informal conversations to build that relationship? Does it mean just actively reminding yourself of that personal aspect? An increasing recognition that if you can, as an individual and as part of the team, 
take time to reflect on the impact of what you've experienced individually and collectively and think about how you sustain yourself and your own well-being, then actually you'll continue to deliver services and services will be sustainable by a workforce that becomes more stable. There is a busyness in terms of particularly healthcare. And one of the things that I see kindness being light up in the middle of in Scotland is this opportunity to perhaps to have a balance of fewer matrices, fewer targets, and increased space for reflection and human relationships. It's not an either and or, it must be together. And so going back a little bit, what drew you to thinking about kindness in the first place? I think the, the word kindness first came in terms of public policy. I was invited by Carnegie to take part in a roundtable conversation. And this was at a time where we recognised there were some very challenging and difficult behaviours that we were seeing in our public life. And I, not necessarily all, all in Scotland, but right across the UK. And coming together and seeing senior civil servants, senior leaders within the public services and within the third sector, articulating what it was about kindness and respect and dignity that made a difference really chimed with with many of the things I've been trying to do not only as a VGP but also as chair of the board and giving space within those board meetings for personal context of conversations of respect and dignity and that was the first time that really I met with Jen Wallace senior member of Carnegie UK and Julia Unwin and it was on the back of that that I was invited to be part of the Kindness Innovation Network. Okay and Sarah thinking more widely what are your favourite examples in the Carnegie research of how kindness has been put into action? There are quite a few examples that are really worth looking at in the public sector and in the third sector but interestingly I think the one which I like most and which there is possibly most learning for organisations in is the commercial sector example, example from Tesco at Mary Hill in Glasgow which was one of the organisations that was looked at from the very earliest stage in the joint Carnegie and JRF work together. And in a way, all of us have been in a Tesco. You might look at them as all being identikit uh, shop, but actually what they found in this Tesco in Maryhill was that there was something different going on and uh, that there was what people could only really describe as an ethos of kindness. And critically, this wasn't just an ethos of kindness in the way in which staff dealt with customers. It was an ethos of kindness in the way in which the management of the organisation treated their staff. And they did so quite deliberately because of a belief that happy staff made for good customer service and happy customers. And again, I think really interesting to note that that wasn't something that just happened by exhortation. It didn't just happen because the manager said, wouldn't it be nice to be nice? But they looked really carefully at the levers at their disposal. They looked at the things that they measured, the things that they rewarded, the things that they reported on, and they changed them so as to prioritise the relational above the transactional. And what that led to was, I think, staff being liberated to follow their own values. I don't think it was an inculcation. There's nothing in the evidence that suggests it was an inculcation of a set of values that Tesco wanted to promote, but it enabled the staff to access their own human values and to relate to the people in their community who came in day in, day out, and to do acts of kindness that were not random, but were quite deliberately located in that community and in that set of relationships. And I think there's maybe a tendency for us to be quite self-referential within the third sector and the, the public sector. And one of the things that Carnegie is always interested in is connecting beyond that into the commercial sector. And therefore, I think that's why I was particularly pleased to see the Tesco example there and to recognise that these issues of how we relate to each other as humans transcend 
the sector that we work in and the organisation that we work for and that some of the building blocks of creating the conditions for positive interpersonal relationships are common across us all. I think the issue of how we move away from just random acts of kindness is something we can discuss a bit more but another example that I was struck by was the Bridgegate Customer Service Centre. Could you talk us a bit through that example that was in the Carnegie Research? Yes, so this is an example that we looked at in the work that we've been doing in North Ayrshire. And some of the thinking that we were bringing to that was informed by our study elsewhere of how the conditions can be created through positive places and that you can organise and design spaces in a way that can make interhuman relationships, interpersonal relationships better. And we'd seen this in other places. Glasgow University Library was an example of somewhere where simply by thinking about the physical space that you were in, you could use that as, as a lever or device to create positive uh, relationships and positive flow of people through a space. I think what the researchers found interesting when they tried to talk about some of that in Bridgegate Customer Service Centre, which was a, a transactional service centre, and people will be familiar with these in many settings, a place where people were coming in with difficult problems, to resolve things which might look like transactional issues, but which actually, of course, touch very deeply on the stuff of their lives. High pressure, high tension situations, situations where the person who you first encountered was not necessarily going to be the person who was able to resolve your problem. And again, we can all think of contexts where that's the case. When the researchers tried to share some of their insight there, what they found was that there were some very deep-seated anxieties, particularly with frontline staff there, about the nature of the relationships they had, the nature of the transactions they had, and a sense that what they prioritised was barriers and security and questions about how to protect them from some of the stress people they encountered. Again, none of which should surprise us if we know about some of the tensions of working in places like that. But I think what that illuminated for us, as indeed much of this work did, is the fact that this is not easy work and that you need to really start from a place of quite deep conversations about the nature of your work, about the relationship between you as a service provider and a customer or a citizen, and that all of the anxieties and fears really have to be exposed and worked through if you're going to move to a place where you can, for example, change the nature of the place in which you encountered each other or think of each other first and foremost as one human being dealing with another human being. And that is not straightforward and it is not easy and it will not happen overnight. You talk in your most recent report about radical kindness. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yes, and I think in many ways that connects well to what I was just saying about the Bridgegate example. As Julia Unwin and indeed uh, Zoe Ferguson noted in the work that they have written about for, for Carnegie on this, there is a risk or a tendency that when you talk about kindness, people will assume that you are talking about something which is soft and fluffy and, and easy to do. And actually, it is it is not an easy thing to do because in the organisations in which many of us work, the structures which we have worked in for at least the last 30 years, the assumptions we have about roles and responsibilities crowd out the human to human connection. And they don't always necessarily lead to a positive relationship between the service provider and the service recipient. And it is a fundamentally potentially disruptive and radical thing to say that at the heart of these transactions or encounters are emotions and things about what it means to be human and how to encounter another human person, particularly if that is another human being who you're encountering at a time of great vulnerability. So the suggestion that we should be 
rebalancing the scales between issues of risk management and performance management and traditional KPIs, more in favour of the human encounter, the human relationship, the empathetic approach, I think rightly has been identified uh, by the researchers as something that is radical and something which the Edinburgh University have also said in their research on this, which I thought was, was really interesting, is that kindness opens your boundaries. It pushes open your boundaries at a time when we know there are lots of other forces which are narrowing boundaries and which are possibly encouraging us to think about us against the other, as opposed to seeing ourselves all as part of one bigger humanity. Now, there's a much bigger discussion there, but I do think this notion that in that context, wanting to push down boundaries as opposed to put them up absolutely feels quite a radical discussion to be having. Okay, and this is one for both of you, which is that another challenge raised in the report was that people can resist thinking about kindness in this systematic radical way and they want to emphasise these random acts of kindness, kindness of individuals. Is there a risk that if we try to focus on organisations and systems, this approach loses its impact as a way to change the way we think about delivering services? So I think that you know, one of the things that our research has guided us to, to recognise is that there are risks, of course, in looking at communities in particular through the lens of organisations who operate there. And uh, that, that's a risk which is well flagged. But on the other hand, particularly when we're pulling up a level to, to thinking about the role of governmental organisations at all levels, but also third sector organisations. So often we hear that individual members of staff who, who are often the ones who have the encounters with citizens, in order to access their human response, they have to break the rules, they have to do things which are not in line with policy and procedure. And I think those of us who are interested in, and I, and I imagine you know, the, the people who are your audience, who are interested in what can you do as leaders of organisations to make a difference? And if it is your staff who make choices day in, day out about whether to prioritise the personal encounter, to be kind, and the signals you send are really important. I think it's relatively easy to just think of this through the lens of how the organisation or an organisation, whether it's public, some public sector or third sector service deliverer, engages with the public. I think that point that you, you have to start at home really, really matters. As a senior leader in government, we spent quite a lot of time, and in Scottish government, we weren't delivering an awful lot of frontline public services, but we did spend a lot of time thinking, what does it mean to be kind to each other, to be kind to ourselves. And uh, and I think the criticality of, of not allowing that conversation to be a kind of senior, the most senior leader conversation that drifts away from people's experience of the day in, day out. Actually, if you start talking in an organisation about things like kindness, you absolutely have to open yourself to the fact that that may not be the daily experience of people in your organisation. And you have to give them permission to talk about that. And that conversations, again, conversations may be seen as being soft, conversations can be really hard but it's the hard conversations that are the ones that are so worth having and you have to stick with them and senior people have to stick with them and I think that's just so important and I think public sector organizations don't always find that easy traditionally. Thank you very much. So Kit can you relate to what they were saying about these kinds of conversations with other civil service colleagues being difficult when talking about switching to a new way of doing things? Yeah I can absolutely as I said, it's common to face a barrier of cynicism when you talk about any emotion-related language. 
But, you know, any new wave of thought has to be doggedly seen through. So even though you meet cynicism and because you meet cynicism, I think it's even more important to double down our efforts and try harder to legitimize this. I think also what struck me from listening to that was the difference between kindness and empathy. Something I haven't particularly thought about in depth before, but as they were talking, they were speaking about a very pure... A model of kindness it, you know it's compassion it's literally just caring about what the other person is going through regardless of what that might be and I admire that and I think it's very important I also think for to legitimize the debate in certainly in policy making circles we need to talk about empathy more widely as well so kindness is you know a sort of a beam of light that you shine on somebody empathy I think is wider more trainable more observable and that is about the ability to take somebody else's perspective so it can often result in kindness but I think it's a set of skills that underpins it more widely which in my view you can absolutely learn and train which is important for this debate because if it's not learnable and trainable it won't get the attention from within government to make that shift if that makes sense. And so obviously when you're thinking about empathy and learning and training it perhaps initially we're thinking about service users, citizens, but both Elizabeth and Sarah spoke about the need to be kind to colleagues as well and to create a kind atmosphere within an organisation. That's reflected in the One Team Gov principles. Do you sense there's more of that in the civil service, in public services? We're seeing increased focus on inclusion, on well-being. I think the optimist in me says that the world is broadly speaking getting fairer. I mean, I could very easily argue against my own view on that. But my observation within the civil service is that there is genuine intrinsic motivation to make the place fairer, and by which I mean less biased against women, more racially inclusive. And although it's lagging, it's getting better and less middle class. And I think those three things, among many other kind of diversity and inclusion markers, are very positive I think that has to go hand in hand with greater empathy because in order to value another human being regardless of all those characteristics I just spoke about you have to think that broadly speaking everybody is around equal and that everybody deserves empathy to a certain degree that's my um, view anyway and I certainly do see more than green shoots of that you know I think the civil service has made great strides in diversity and inclusion I do think that there's a long way to go And I would always cite cognitive diversity as the next big leap for government, which, again, I think is a stepping stone into a conversation about empathy because it involves trying harder to understand the way that somebody else thinks. In the uh, Bridgewater Service Centre example that we heard there, there's a sense that staff resisted a more emotional approach to design because of their instinct for barriers, rules and protection. When you were in the civil service, how did you try and address the fears that people had to doing things differently? Um, I think that's a good question. I also, my observation of having worked with job centres for several years wasn't actually that they were obsessed with barriers and rules. My general observation was that they were obsessed with good customer service delivery and they were doing that in a very difficult and constrained environment. But I do take your point that people do need a framework within which to operate and to have some kind of emotional angle on that might make it seem difficult. I actually found it easier to have the conversation with operational members of staff because they closely observed people in crisis on a day-to-day basis. And so they found it much more natural to, to acknowledge the emotional state that the service users were going through. One angle I've taken before with policymakers is to talk about risk because I frequently observed, particularly in the justice system, policy being made in the abstract without 
um, acknowledging the emotional state of people who will be on the receiving end of it. And it's no secret that people who are in a state of heavy vulnerability or crisis, financial or domestic crisis of any type, and incarceration would obviously fall into that, are less able to make rational decisions. So if you make policy about people without taking any account of the fact that they are in a state of crisis, your policy is highly likely to fail. And that's the most common rhetoric that I've used with senior policymakers. I find it really interesting that you keep referring to these need to be measurable things, they need to be trainable things, that we need to kind of be combining a data based approach with a a more emotional understanding and I think you described it really nicely for us in a column you wrote a a few years ago in which you said that civil servants need to be hard-headed but warm-hearted yeah and could you give us an example of lack of empathy in policy making I'm sure you've got plenty to draw on yes I'm not short of examples because that was my general observation was that most policy making cycles did not contact uh, members of the public when they were going through development. And the one that I cite most often, uh, which is most viscerally realistic to me, was my time working on women's offender management at the Ministry of Justice. This is a long time ago, so I'm sure it's changed a lot now. But I worked on that policy area for about six months. The way that that women are treated in prison uh, needs to be specific to their care because there are many factors which make their care different from, for example, that of a young man. So women are uh, less frequently violent when in custody. They more frequently have dependent children and a number of other factors. Now, I didn't go to a women's prison for the whole time that I made women offender management policy. It was never something that was required of me and it was never something that was suggested to me. Looking back on that experience, I was flabbergasted at my own blindness in making policy about a group of people and how to manage them in prison without ever meeting one or ever going to a women's prison. And I had a sort of post hoc panic at how incompetent I must have been at my job, having not observed any of these people going about their daily lives behind bars. And it's something that sort of personally fueled this journey that I've been on to try and get closer to human experience in designing policy. I mean, you can see just logically your work would be of less high quality if you didn't understand fully the people that you were writing policy about, but also the financial implications of carrying through an operational change across a prison network is huge. And I wasn't fully briefed on what that actually meant because I had never seen it in situ. And that terrified me so much and I've never forgotten it. And it's the example I use most frequently when thinking about the actual real life risks of working this way. Can I pick a little bit at your your post hoc guilt because mm. obviously you quoted there there there's data about the differences between women prisoners and male prisoners yeah what additional benefit do you think actually going to visit a prison or meeting with the uh, the women offenders themselves could bring on top of that data i'm sure policymakers will look at the data yes um policymakers will look at the data obsessively and good decisions can be made from that but not the richest possible set of decisions can be made from that so for example uh, data cannot adequately or the data i looked at couldn't adequately acknowledge the emotional state of the women and therefore you know any government policy is designed to affect some kind of societal change so some of that policy was designed at certain interventions for women's offender groups which was expected to have a certain result but we never went and asked them whether it would have that particular result. That's just one glaring example. But how can people sitting in Whitehall 
adequately describe and predict the behavior of a group of people that they've never met, particularly when that group of people is not necessarily at its most rational because they're in a period of crisis. So even if the data tells you everything's going to be fine, you never know until you see it for yourself. So how can we measure or monitor the impact of emotion-based policy without undermining the value of emotion to disrupt systems? I think that's one of the next big challenges, but some strides have already been taken to doing that. So I would cite at this point Caroline Criado Perez's book about data bias against women, where she very coherently argues about using analytics, data, quantifiable data to understand the emotional bias that women face in society at large. That's one example, but it's very powerful. In HMRC, there is empathy training that's going on that allows people to literally learn how to learn and apply empathy in their day-to-day lives. I also think that there is a intellectual argument to be made about observability of empathic action as opposed to just having things measurable on paper. And I think that If people were to take a step back and be open-minded about this, you could very easily see how operational observation of emotional state could be aggregated up to make a quantifiable data set. You could very easily make that leap. It's just that we haven't legitimized the conversation yet. That's just a few examples that I can think of. But we have the great strength of huge analytical minds in the civil service. And I'd really like to see some type of A-B testing about trying to apply empathy in policymaking and then measuring the results of that and doing post-hoc analysis. I think that's also legitimate. So I think we do, you can see and very easily design in your head the beginning of an empathy-driven policy framework which would be observable down the line. It just takes a bit of courage to do it and I would guess it would take a government less distracted by something like Brexit. So I think it also has to find its right time. One encouraging point in that journey is that we do have the What Works for Wellbeing Centre. Mm. Um, and I had a conversation with a member of staff there. So obviously someone who supports a focus on kind of trying to measure this this kind of thing. And there's lots of evidence through, through that centre around wellbeing interventions and also links to empathy training and learning as well. But when we had that conversation, they felt that words like kindness are fundamentally about how we deliver services and don't necessarily affect the what of a service. Now, in OneTeamGov and in kind of digital and design circles, I, I get the sense it's a bit more radical that by focusing on people and on their experience, you're actually changing the entirety of what you design, not just how you deliver it. Is that a fair characterization? Yes, I think that's how I feel about this. Others would disagree. I think it's legitimate to look at the how because it gives you something easier to chew off to say, I exist within all of these constraints. My circle of agency is this. Within that circle of agency, I will exercise kindness and empathy in my work. That's really legitimate. To widen out that circle to what we do, the decisions we make is is harder and a longer term thing. So I think that the smaller circle of how is legitimate. I personally feel passionately about trying to redesign how we do policy centered around the humans who will be on the receiving end of it. And so I am passionate about the what and service redesign. And particularly, I do think you referred to government structures earlier. I do think that there is a huge opportunity for government to redesign around the user need of service users. And to try and pierce the kind of, that rhetoric is overused to the point that I think we've sort of forgotten what it means. But what it means to me is 
somebody has to be on the receiving end of government policy. If not, that policy is empty. There is no point making it. So almost every government policy made has a service tagged on the end of it. But infrequently is there either service design up front, which informs the policy, or a feedback loop, which iterates the policy. Those two things are frequently absent. And that's what applied empathy looks like to me. You know, it could begin just with a simple observation of human behavior and trying to move from a transactional model of services to an interactional model of services. And that, I think, is hugely unexplored. And importantly, the financial impact of that being unexplored is huge because, simply put, you don't have to make policy that's going to be wasted because it'll be poorly implemented because you'll have operational wisdom and behavioural observation at the point you design it. So looking to the future, could we mandate this kind of approach? Can you force people to have empathy or to be kind? Or can you train them? Yes, I think you can. I don't think you need to force people to be kind. That's not my view. I do think you should mandate empathy training. And I do think that appreciating emotional state, vulnerability, crisis, motive, I do think they should be a mandated part of developing policy. The whole of New Zealand has got budgets now driven by well-being metrics. Scotland, you know, Scotland is frequently ahead of the wider UK where it comes to policymaking. You know, their work on gender is way ahead of the curve. So you've got these very progressive public services and wider governments looking at something called well-being which would have been laughed at 10 years ago as a way of measuring Mm -hmm. how we do policy but now you've got whole countries who are centering themselves around giving budget to those things so I think it is increasing in legitimacy to me it's an extension of that to say yes we will train in empathy and when we say that we don't just mean some kind of airy fairy emotional language we mean you will be trained to conquer your own biases you will be trained in active listening you will be trained in inclusive policy making you will be trained in observing research those are just four things there would be there are a million more you know these are concrete actions of empathy and we don't need to talk about it in the abstract to make it legitimate Well, thanks so much, Kit, for joining us. This has been really fascinating, lots to think about. And this is obviously something that means a lot to you. Yeah, it means a huge amount. And and I'm aware that some of the ways I'm talking can come across quite negatively. But the only reason that I'm bothering talking about this and the people around me are bothering talking about it is because we believe so much in the civil service machine. And we're in public service or have been in public service because of the passion that we have for trying to make the world better through doing that duty. The people in the civil service and in wider public service are some of the cleverest, most passionate, most ardently devoted people to members of the public public that I've ever seen. And I wouldn't bother trying to legitimise the argument about empathy if I didn't think that public service could change and that this could be the next wave of improvement among many. So I always, despite how difficult it is to legitimise this conversation, I do hold up hope that it will and can make the machine better. That's a lovely note to end on. Thank you. That's all we've got time for. But before we sign off, we have a special guide to civil service seasons or the time periods that ministers promise to publish or report on something by, and when that publication actually will occur. So examples include... In the new year. By Easter. Spring. By the time the summer recess begins. Summer. By mid-October when Parliament resumes. Autumn. Around (laughs) Christmas. In due course. In a very long time, if I haven't forgotten. Actually, scratch that. I have no idea when or if we plan to publish this. 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Civil Service World podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and get in touch if there's anything you can think of that we should cover in future. You can contact us through our Twitter handle at CSW News. Thank you.